check in as your ministry. So with all that said, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. And I'm kind of going to recap for a second because if you were here two weeks ago, I kind of took part of the verses and pushed them back into chapter 10, kind of in the lineage, because in my mind that's sort of a better fit. But that story was the Tower of Babel, if you were here that night. And the reason I want to recap it just for a second, you know, that whole story we kind of know, they built a tower, but we sometimes miss why they were doing it. It was really a sinful tower. It was all about pride and selfishness. The people even said, let us make a name for ourselves. And they were kind of being led by an evil ruler, and I made the case he was kind of like the first tyrant. His name was Nimrod. But he was teaching people, don't listen to God, just be who you want, we're going to do our own thing. And he was literally speaking against God. And so God punished them. And the tower itself, if you remember too, it wasn't built toward heaven, because it looks like that if you read it too fast. It was to the heavens, plural. And so they were also dabbling in astrology, worshiping the sun, the moon, false gods. And so it was really a wicked tower, a wicked city. But here's also something to think about that I didn't say two weeks ago. Think about when Israel goes into exile or the nation of, of Jews. Where do they go? Babylon. Why do they have to go on both occasions? They're being selfish. They have lots of false gods. They walked away from the Lord. So God kind of allows them to go back to the homeland of that behavior, to Babel, to Babylon. In other words, if you want to act Babylonian, I'll let you go back in captivity to Babylon. So it's not a good thing. And we'll see it in Scripture over and over. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to him. Remember, he was prideful and said, look what I did. And God humbled him, made him go live in a field. Dew was on his back. His toenails and hair gets all long and crazy. So Babylon is a picture of selfishness and anti-godliness. So think about that as we progress through our text tonight. So we're going to start up tonight in verse 10. So chapter Genesis 11, verse 10. Here's what it says. This is the account of Shem's family line. If you were here two weeks ago, remember, I said Shem. We've changed that now to Sim because there's no real SH sound in Greek and Latin because we know the Semites, and I think there's a few Semites here tonight. But in anti-Semitism, we know that word. But really, it's the lineage of Shem, which is one of Noah's sons. So let me keep reading. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, Sounds old to us, but he's really not. We'll get to that in a second. He became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived, look, 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Because sometimes we can imagine, I think, as we read the Noah's Ark story that Pastor Bob covered a few weeks back, we almost imagine the sons and daughters are young. Well, they're 100 years young, if you want to see that as young. But they lived to 500, so they're probably, in our mind, a little past teenager, maybe entering middle age at best. But it also says they had other sons and daughters. Making me wonder, as I was studying this, how many sons and daughters could you have over 400 years? I would say probably a lot. So this is how they populated the earth. They lived long to, to kind of increase the population. We're going to skip verses 12 all the way down to 25, because all that is is a list of names, it's genealogies, 
And I want to jump to 26 because we're going to jump down to one of the names I want to talk about. Let me read verse 26. It says, after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram. And that's the name I want to talk about tonight, Abram, who eventually will be Abraham. So I may go back and forth. We all do it, I think. Abram, Abraham. But at this moment, he's still Abram. But he was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Well, the lineage is important, too, because Terah fathered Abraham, and then I'm going to skip a bunch of names, but it really ends up at Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Jesus. It ends up in Jesus. And the reason I said Genesis, I do want to look at a verse out of Genesis. Let's go back and look at Genesis 3.15. The lineage is completed in Jesus, but here's the, the verse I want to re- kind of remember us um, back in chapter 3. Because we read this, we talked about it. It's important because of, I think, this past weekend. Look what it says. It's like a prophecy against Satan, and it says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, because he deceived her, remember, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, and that would be Jesus, will strike, and really the, the word translates to crush. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. This past weekend, we celebrated Easter. That was the strike on the heel. But Jesus is going to crush his head. On the cross, he really did that. He really crushes him twice. On the cross, Jesus wins. We win because of that, by the way. But also in Revelation, he's going to smack him on the head and kind of give him a wound too. So Jesus is victorious, and there's the verse that tells us it's going to happen. And all that comes through Terah, Abram, and then a bunch of more names we'll get to at some point. But this verse, 1126, this is the first place in the Bible that Abram's name is mentioned. In the book of Genesis, by the way, you know, we're just getting started good. We're in 11 tonight. It's 50 chapters, 50 chapters. So we'll see how long it takes us. You know, even I don't know yet because we got some special nights mixed in. There's a summer praise and worship night coming on Wednesday, for example. That'll be awesome. Yeah, don't miss that one if you've never been here. But 50 chapters over 2,000 years. It covers a lot of territory, but, but here's what's kind of cool. There's 20 generations in there, from Adam to Jacob and Joseph, which is where it kind of ends up. But a third of the book, a third of Genesis, is mostly about Abram, or Abraham, if you want to call him that. He's one of the Bible's kind of foundational characters. He's sort of what we would call a hero, but... A, I would make the case, and this ought to, I think, encourage you, he's sort of every man, every woman's hero. And here's why I say that. You know, what is he known for? If you read Hebrews, he's known for his faith. He's not known, for example, for killing Goliath. He didn't do that. He didn't part the Red Sea. Because when we hear those stories, or even build Noah's Ark, I'm thinking there's no way I could probably do any of those things unless God helped me, of course, like he helped those guys. But faith. We can have faith. We can have great faith, for example, even as great as Abram's or Abraham's. Because maybe you're thinking as I say that, well, I don't know, Dave. I don't think I have the faith of Abram. Well, let me help you out, and you'll see it tonight. Abram or Abraham didn't have the faith of Abraham either. He made a bunch of mistakes. We're going to see a lot of those tonight. Some we know about. Some we might have kind of glossed over that I might draw a little attention to. But the real key in the story is God is going to build up Abraham or Abram's faith. He can build ours the same way. 
So even if you think yours is like that mustard seed scripture talks about, God can build that up in you and I the same way he did for Abraham. Which brings up our first main point. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this one down. This faith, this great faith especially, it's not automatic. It really, it's a decision. It's a choice. Because scripture says, remember, just have the faith of the size of a mustard seed. Then God will do the rest. He will grow it. But we have to sort of choose to have it and decide, I'm going to have this faith. Because the reason I say it's a decision, you know, some people want to try to line up science. I said this before a few weeks back and prove everything. I need some proof. I don't know if I can believe this Christianity stuff, even the resurrection, because I just don't know about that. That's why it takes faith. Faith is just you and I saying, I don't need all those details. I'm just going to step out in faith like Abram did and let God grow my faith. So we have to just decide, I'm going to do this. And then if we make that conscious decision, God will help us. He'll help it increase. Because maybe you're already thinking, yeah, yeah, I get that, but I just don't know about my faith. Well, I would make the case you have it, you just might not know it. Let me give you two examples. Probably a lot of you, and I would be in this category myself, when you go home tonight, maybe you'll turn on your television. Do you really understand how your television works? Unless you're some kind of engineer with audio-video knowledge, you don't, because I don't. Here's what I do, and this is what you do too. You go home and you pick up the remote, you click the button, it comes on. But I'm kind of cheap, so I don't have cable anymore. I've got an antenna. And in my case, somewhere in Orlando, there's a big giant tower. It's beaming little beams of something, particles. It comes to my house, down a wire, onto my TV, and i got a great picture. Do I really understand that? No. I just turn it on, and I expect it to come on, just like you do. When your TV's not working, what do you do? You get kind of angry, hopefully not really angry. You hit it. I heard that one. You smack the thing because that'll probably straighten it out. But you expect it. You have, I would say, faith it's going to work because if it doesn't work, you get upset about it. So that means you kind of have faith it's going to come on. And that would also apply to cable, by the way, if you do have cable. I'll give you another one. How many of you flown on an airplane? A lot. And if you hadn't, you've had a loved one do it, I'm sure. Maybe you were nervous, maybe you prayed for them. But I'll tell you another thing I don't quite understand. Um, I even looked this one up to make sure I didn't give you some crazy false number. The average commercial airliner weighs about 500,000 pounds. So how a 500,000, that's empty before we get on it. How in the world does a 500,000 pound thing come off the ground and get me to wherever I'm going? I have no idea, but I got a lot of faith it's going to. I just get on, I don't get nervous, and there's a lot of turbulence, and I might a little bit. But once again, I just expect to end up where I'm going, where my ticket says I'm going to be. I have faith in that pilot, for that matter. I have faith in the hydraulics. They're not going to break on the way. So we have faith. We have to have that kind of faith about your television, the airplane, about God's Word. I don't need all the details to get on that plane. I just, I know it's going to work. I know my TV's going to work. That's similar to the way God asks us to be about his word. Just have faith. It's going to work. It'll come on when you hit the button. We have faith. We just sometimes don't realize it. But it wasn't just his faith. It was actions mixed with faith. And James does a great job describing that. 
Let's look at a verse out of James 2, actually a couple of verses. Because it's his faith plus what? You know the word, action. And James is going to remind us, if you don't know the word, don't you remember our ancestor, he's Abraham by now, was shown to be right with God by his actions. Hebrews says he has great faith, but James makes the case when he offered up Isaac, remember he drew the knife back, he was literally ready to stab his one and only son that he had no way to replace in his mind. He had faith God would fix it. But he offered his son Isaac on the altar, and then he says in 22, you see, his faith and his actions worked together. They had to be mixed and mingled. His actions made his faith complete. Now, we know and believe here at Calvary, if you don't know, you know, works can't save us. That's not what James is saying at all. What he's really saying is, if I claim I have great faith or even little faith, I should have some sort of action to go with it. That might be like, you guys have action tonight. You're here on a Wednesday night when it was kind of rainy and drizzly, or maybe you're watching online. That's okay, too. You're watching a church service. That's an action. You're interested in God and godly things. You're hungry for the word. Some of you tonight are volunteering in the sanctuary and out in the commons. You're serving. You're on the cameras. You're serving. That's an action. So your faith should make us want to do an action. It doesn't save us, but really a better way to put it probably is, I'm so grateful that Jesus died for me. I want to, want to serve him, to show how much faith I have in what he did for me. Not that I have to, I want to, because I love him. And our actions can be a way of sort of, we can't ever pay Jesus back, but it's a a small way of us sort of paying it forward because our actions usually benefit other people. When we serve, it's not for our sake, it's for others' sake. So that's what James is saying. Just don't get confused that, you know, somehow works would get me in a better standing or God's going to like me better. God already loves us as much as he possibly can, which is more than we can ever imagine. So our actions don't increase his love. It's more like us showing him love back. Does that make sense? Good, because we're moving on. Verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line, the lineage. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, which we read a while ago. And Haran became the father of Lot. Another name you might want to remember, but it's not always a good one. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Then 29 goes on to say, Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and we know later she becomes Sarah, but right now she's still Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Look at what verse 30 says. Now Sarai, or Sarah, was childless because she was not able to conceive. We know that story. It's a famous story. But it's a great example of something I said a couple of weeks back when we were in Genesis 1 and then we got into 4. In other words, Scripture or God's Word, it tells us a general statement, a general overview, I think is how I put it. Something in a general way. Verse 30 says, Sarah was childless, unable to conceive. Chapters later, we'll get all the details. 
And by the way, we'll get the details of Sarai and Sarah's story in Abram's over in chapter 18 and 21 of Genesis when we finally get there. That'll be all the fine details. And I brought this up when we taught Genesis 1 and 4 because if you remember on chapter 1, it's telling the account of creation and it says, God, it's talking about God, it says, male and female, he created them. And then later in chapter 4, we get the story of Adam and Eve. And I was making the case that night, it's the same two people. Because sometimes people get a little squirrely with that one. They think it's two other people. It's the same people. Same story, just general statement in chapter 1, all the details in chapter 4, just like we're going to see with Sarai in chapter right now 10 and 11, and then 18 and 21, we'll get the details. Verse 31, let's move on some more. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. Together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Canaan is what we know as the promised land. But then look at the next sentence. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. I got us a map, at least I hope I do, because sometimes that gets a little confusing. In the bottom right corner where that little box is, that's Ur. You can probably read it, U-R. Kind of a funny name for a city, by the way. But that's where they started. And look where they go. They go through Babylonia, Babylon, the tower. They go through the territory of the Hittites eventually. The dotted line ends up at Haran. So that's kind of where they stop. That'll be significant in a few minutes. And then eventually, as we keep reading our story tonight, they end up going further down to Canaan, which is where they're supposed to be, and they end up stopping. You might see that right below Canaan, there's a city called Shechem. That's, we'll talk about that in a second. But that's the journey that Terah and Abraham were told to go on. But they didn't exactly do what God said, and we'll get to that in a second, too. Verse 32, let's finish that one. Terah lived, that's the father, 205 years, and look where he died, in Haran. So he goes to the halfway point. Now we're going to move to chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you're following along, chapter 12, verse 1, here's what God says. The Lord had said, past tense, had said to Abram, go from your country, and we know this statement, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you. So had said means he'd already said this. He said this in the past. Where did he say it? Well, it doesn't tell us where we are, but there's a, another verse that Stephen says, and he quotes the exact verse we just read. Remember the story where Stephen is being stoned or after he says all this kind of stuff to the, the religious rulers and they don't like what he's saying? He quotes this exact verse, but he also, as he quotes it, adds a detail that wasn't in the Genesis verse. It'll make more sense if we look at it together on screen. Some of these verses you just got to see to kind of almost make sense. This is in Acts, as you can see, Acts 7, and it's verses 2 through 4. So imagine Stephen saying this right before he's stoned to death. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Look where he says he was while he was still in Mesopotamia. That's not Haran. That's down in Ur. So according to Stephen, which is according to God's word, so it's true, Abram got told this in Mesopotamia before 
He lived in Haran. Look what he told him. This is the part he quotes exactly. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, and he settled in Haran. This is where it just told us that his father Terah dies. But here's the kind of slight mistake, I'll call it. Um, It's not one of his big ones, but if he was told this originally in Ur or Mesopotamia, as Stephen called it, if they only went to Haran, that's halfway, more or less. So I would almost call that a partial obedience because God told him, go to the land I'll show you. He didn't say go to Haran and stop. And he didn't finish his assignment, if you want to think of that as an assignment from the Lord, he didn't finish his assignment until after his father dies. Who knows? Maybe he was scared of his dad. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he doesn't do the whole thing. But then look at verse 2, back to our text in, um, tonight. Verse 2 says, and it's part of the promise, he says, go to the land I'll show you. He doesn't promise him the land yet, he just says, go to the land I'll show you. But this is a promise. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Think of what Abram must be thinking right now. Remember a few verses back, we learned that Sarai was childless. God is telling him, you're going to be a great nation. He had not got a single kid yet. He probably says, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm just going to go. I'm going to go, but I'm going to stop at Haran. Which is our our second thing, if you want to write down tonight. Our faith isn't complicated, really. Like I said a while ago, we have faith in things like TVs and airplanes. It's trusting God moving forward. Because all God told them was, go to the land, I'll show you. He didn't tell them where it was. Go to the land, I'll show you. And he's kind of saying, if you think about it, I'll tell you when to stop. I'll tell you when you get there. I just made the case he stopped it a little early, but at least he took off on the adventure. I'm not sure I or you would have done that. You know, step out in faith and go to a place you don't even know where it is. Just start walking, and I'll tell you when you get there. That's pretty big faith, I would say. So Abraham, I see why he's in the hall of faith, but I also see some mistakes he makes, like the halfway part. And here's what I thought as I was studying this. When I've had maybe lack of faith, and I've had moments in my life, of course, where I didn't have a lot of faith, ye a little faith, that would be me, some of you too, I'm thinking. Our lack of faith usually means, in my case, you can decide for yourself if that's you, we don't really fully trust God. We need more details. I need to know how that plane works before I can get on there. I need to know how the TV works tonight before I can flip the switch on it. We kind of do that with God. God, I need to know the details. I know you're calling me to do this thing, but I'll, I'll do it when you give me more details. In Scripture, over and over, God a lot of times just says, go. Just go. Put one foot in front of the other. I'll let you know when you have arrived. But let's look at what else he said in that verse, that um, promise out of verse 2. I'll make your name great. We sometimes see that as Christianity because of Jesus and the lineage I showed us earlier. But three of the main world religions all see Abram or Abraham as their founding father, their patriarch. The Jews, of course, because they had him first. The Christians come later and the Muslims come later. The Muslims see him as their founding father too. 
The only part we differ with them on, they argue about which son is the favored son. You know, we say it's Isaac, they say it's Ishmael. We'll get to his name later tonight too, maybe. But then he says, so his name is great. That prophecy came true was the point I was making by three of the main world religions. Then verse 3 he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That bless Israel verse is significant, and it's found in other places in the Bible. I just kind of picked this one out of Numbers. Let's look at Numbers 24. This is kind of a sobering thought if you think of how we treat Israel sometime. Like a lion, Israel crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to arouse her. That's not the important part. Look what it says in the next half. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, O Israel. This is the kind of scary part. Cursed is everyone who curses you. This is a warning to our country and other countries around the world, by the way. If we quit blessing Israel, what does that verse say happens? Curse. We have to support Israel. God is not done with the Jewish people. They come back in Revelation. Many of them get saved. Because sometime in Christianity, we've historically treated the Jews poorly. And even, even modern times now, some denominations will tell you that God's done with Israel, that the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. You don't replace what's in here. God's word says, bless Israel, I'll bless you. Curse Israel, I'll curse you. And I'll give you four examples. It's a long list, but I'll give you four quick ones. Um, two of these are old world powers, Greece and Rome. Both of them historically, and even in the Bible times, treated Israel terribly. We know those stories. What happened to Greece and Rome? Are they very powerful nations today? No. They're minor players at best and struggling for money. Nobody goes there hardly. They're nowhere near world powers is my point. I'll give you two more. One medium modern, one not that old at all. Spain and Germany. There was a famous persecution of Jews in Spain. Spain, once, remember, it was a world power, sailed to America, did all the exploration. Spain, nowadays, kind of like a um, mid-level power at best. Then last would be Germany. Germany may have mistreated Israel and the Jews the worst. We know about the Holocaust. All four were world powers. All four fell. It's how they treated Israel. God is the judge, not me. And we would, I hope, never do anything like that. But if we quit showing Israel favor, is what, more what I'm saying, and that could happen in our lifetime, by the way. We seem to be pulling back further and further from Israel, defending them, helping them. God could pull his hand back off of us the same way our nation is what I mean by us. We have to love Israel, pray for Israel, support Israel. They're God's chosen people. That didn't change. And the church, us being the church, has not replaced them. So we have to be careful with that one. Unfortunately, we're just kind of regular people, but we can pray. We can pray for Israel. We can pray that God protects their nation from all those Muslim hostile nations around them. We can pray that God protects them because he, he will. He's God. 
But we as a nation want to be blessed. We want to be part of that too. So we have to bless them so we get blessed. That verse just said that. But then it goes on to say, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. Well, that would be Jesus, by the way. Once again, back to Easter this weekend. It wasn't so much Abraham and his lineage until it ends up at Jesus, but through the Messiah, through Jesus is what that meant. All people will be blessed. All peoples on earth is what it really says. And that's the part where I think the Jews drop the ball. They turn that kind of prophetic word into sort of what I would call a holy huddle. They made it to be the Jews only. He's going to bless us and no Gentiles. The verse, just let me reread it. Verse 3 says, all peoples on earth. That's all nations, including ours. The whole globe will be blessed through Jesus if they put their faith, their hope, and their trust in him like we have. But they kind of missed it, but they do get a second chance in end times. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, but I already made the case. He only went halfway because he was told that in Ur. And look who he takes. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. If we went back to verse 1, I'm not going to reread it. Remember it said, leave your father's household, leave your people. He's kind of telling him to go solo. He's taking Lot. We know the story of Lot, right? That becomes a mistake later. Not so good. Probably should have, in my opinion, left Lot at home. I would call it again, maybe at best, a partial obedience because he wasn't really supposed to take Lot or his father's people. Let's keep reading. We'll see some more people. Verse 5, I'm going to read 5 and 6. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and all the people they had acquired. So probably his household, his servants, his helpers, his whole family unit, if you will, that he had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So they're finally in the promised land as we know it. Verse 6 says, Abram traveled through the land, not just he didn't just go in, through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. We'll talk more about Shechem in a second. And then it tells us at that time the Canaanites, I'm always saying the ites, here's one of the ites right here, the Canaanites were in the land. So they arrive in Canaan, they move down, remember the map, down to Shechem, but it's over 400 years later before all the pagans are finally removed or kicked out. A lot of time was wasted, and we'll talk about that in a second too. Let's read another verse, verse 7. Now he's going to get the promise, as we would put it. Because remember, he had set up until now, go to the land I'll show you. Verse 7, he's going to kind of ramp it up a little. The Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, to your offspring I will give this land. Not just go to a land, I will give them this land. This specific land is a better way to think about it. So what does Abram do? It says, he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So this is the promise of this exact land. That's why we call it the promised land. As I read this, though, I kind of wondered, maybe you do as I said it, you know, how did God appear? Well, we don't really know. I'll throw out there two possibilities if it was in person, and it might have been, by the way, I would make the case that would be a pre, what we would call a pre-incarnate Jesus. 
Because God the Father, remember, if you go over to the Moses story, which I'm not going to do, he says, you can't see my face, you can't see me and live. All you can see is my back as I pass by. So far as we know, you can't really see the Father God face to face. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, so by default, that would leave who as the appearance? Jesus. We're going to see that again next week as Pastor Dave teaches, I think. But it might not have been a person at all. You know, maybe he appeared like he did to Moses. Maybe it was a pillar of fire, a burning bush. We don't really know, so I'm not going to speculate. But it could have been a pre-incarnate Jesus. I'll just put that out there. But I do like what Abram did. He says, that was so awesome, I'm going to build an altar. I want to remember this, and I want to do this. I want to meet with God again. He's saying, I want to keep meeting. That's what he's really saying by building this altar. Because think about what God's already said if I kind of review this. He says, I'll make you a great nation. That was the first part. Now he's telling him, I'm going to give you and your descendants this exact land. And then he just said, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. There's three great promises, but, but here's kind of the, almost the sad part a little bit. All that could have happened starting right then, right there. It didn't, because we've got a lot more chapters to cover about what really happens. But the promise is out there. God has put the offer out there. He's told him what he'll do, and he showed him exactly where the land is. But think about what Israel does historically. They start, for lack of a better word, misbehaving. They make false gods, altars, sacrifice their kids to you know, idols and statues, and they don't actually enter the promised land until hundreds and hundreds of years later. Could it have happened right then, right there? Well, the promise is on the table. Three promises, really. I'll bless you. I'll give you a great nation. And, and the land is yours. We'll see what Josh, I mean, we'll see what um, Abram does. But before I move on, I want to talk about Shechem for a second. Because two other, there's other things that happen, but I would say there's two main things that happened at Shechem in the scripture, that, that map we looked at that we saw. There's some kind of famous verses in Joshua, and it's in Joshua 24. I'm going to read a few of them just out loud to you. You can turn there if you want. We're going to Joshua 24, but I'm going to read four, then we're going to look at two on screen at the end. Joshua 24 verse 1 says this, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, well, why is he assembling the nation? Misbehavior. He assembled them, and you'll see in a second as I read it, to challenge them about worshiping false gods. They were already acting bad, and it hadn't been that long since Noah's Ark. Let me read a couple of more verses. That was verse 1. I'm going to read 2 through 4. Here's what Joshua says. So it's Joshua 24, verse 2 through 4. Joshua said to all the people after they're assembled, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham we just read about, of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and he worshipped other gods. So Terah was a pagan. Abraham grew up in a pagan household. Was he himself? We don't know, but a lot of people think he was until he was called by God. But verse 3 says, I took your father from there. I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates. I led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob, 
and Esau. We're going to skip down to verse 15. That's the one I want to show on screen. This is a verse you know. It might even be on your refrigerator. You can tell me later, especially the last sentence. Joshua's challenged. They're, think about what they're going on. They're worshiping false gods. They're, they're in idolatry. They've moved away from the Lord. So he calls them together and says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose. Classic verse of choice, by the way. Choose today who you will serve. Choose for yourselves who you'll serve. Were the gods your ancestors, like, my, like Terah, <laughs> served beyond the Euphrates? Or, think where they're at now, the Canaanites, the pagans, the, another eye, and this says the Amorites, all those are pagans too. You can serve their gods if that's what you're going to choose in whose land you're currently living, this promised land. But look what Joshua says. This is the part that might be on your refrigerator or your bumper. Who knows where you have it? Maybe it's marked in your Bible. If it's not, you might want to highlight it. Highlight Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the good news is, yes, you can clap because I hope you're serving the Lord. This verse is hanging in my kitchen, by the way. Um, just that last part because I like it so much. It's a good reminder to look up at that verse, me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The people listened. They got convicted by Joshua's speech, his challenge. They repent. They turn back to God, and it, it was a good thing. They, they got convicted to choose God, but they clearly had a choice. Who are you going to serve? The pagans you're already serving, or are you going to repent and come back to God? And so they, they do repent. So that was the first kind of, I would call it the big thing at Shechem. The second big thing involves Joseph, which we'll get to over in chapter 50. Before Joseph dies, and we'll look at a verse in a second, remember he's in Egypt, but he gives instructions to Israel, when I die, take my bones when you leave. I don't want to be here in Egypt. Why would he say that? Well, he knows he's in a pagan nation. He doesn't want to be in exile. He wants to be with his people. He has great faith also, by the way, because think of Joseph's status. We know the story of Joseph and his brothers and the coat and all that. He's rich. He's famous. He's got all the stuff you would think would be attractive. But he says, there's something better for me, even if only my bones get to experience it. I want to be with God's people. I want to be in the promised land. So he made them like promise to take him there, even though he would be dead. Let's look at two verses, two verses that kind of remind us of that. Hebrews and Joshua. This verse is the tiny tail end of Joshua that we had on screen a while ago. But Hebrews, look, by faith, I just said Joseph had great faith. When his end was near, so before he dies, he gives these instructions. He spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. He knew they were going to leave someday. And he gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Then Joshua tells us what exactly happened. Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought from Egypt, were buried where? At Shechem, that we just looked at. So Shechem is kind of significant. It's not that big of a city. It's where Abram stops in the Promised Land after he gets out of Haran. But it's where Joshua gives that famous speech that might be on the refrigerator. It's also where Joseph's bones are. 
There's another possibility that I didn't put in my notes, but I can tell you. Um, some people think, and it's not provable, that's why I didn't include it, but I might as well tell you anyway because I've already got you interested now. The woman at the well, we know that story, right? It happened at a little town called Sychar, or Sychar, depending on how you pronounce it. Many Bible historians believe that Shechem, did they just changed the name. It's not really provable, though, so it's kind of like a theory. Doesn't really matter, but there might have been another big thing, is my point. It could have been something else, and more in the New Testament. But Shechem, either way, is kind of significant. We're going to see another city here in a minute that might be significant, too. Let's get back to our text, though. Verse 8. It says, what happened to Abram? We're back to Abram's story now. From there, in other words, from Shechem, that's the there. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, he built an altar to the Lord. So this is his second altar. And he called on the name of the Lord. So he's worshiping God. He's not long out of paganism. His father was a pagan. He's already built two altars in worship in the Lord. So he's doing a lot of good things. He stepped out in faith. But let's talk about Bethel for a second before we get to maybe a couple of mistakes Abram makes. Bethel, if you look in Scripture, it's the boundary of two of the, the tribes of Israel. It was a city on the boundary of Ephraim and Benjamin. There's another famous story about Bethel coming up, but we have to wait till chapter Genesis 28 to hear it. But you probably know it. It's the story of Jacob's ladder. Remember, Jacob has a dream. He puts his head on a rock, and he dreams about Jacob's ladder. That happened at Bethel. And then that week, we'll hear what Bethel actually, I'm not going to tell you yet. You can look it up. What it translates to is a meaning. But later, Bethel kind of doesn't do so hot. It becomes the border city. It defines the boundaries of the northern kingdom of Israel, which ends up being bad, by the way and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we know Judah because the lion of Judah, David's lineage leads to Jesus. Because the two kingdoms, the reason I said it was bad, I'm not going to go into it, but they divide over idolatry, back to this false god idolatry thing. And Bethel ends up on the wrong side, and you'll see it in a second. And if you look at that history, um, you can find it in other parts of Scripture, Israel's first king was a bad guy named Jeroboam, and he was very, very wicked according to Scripture. Here's what he does. You can, you can decide how wicked he is when I tell you what he does. This Jeroboam guy, because the kingdom is split, so the problem is now Jerusalem is down in the south, so they can't really get there. So what does he do? He makes two giant golden calves, he, and that's for the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're for worship. That's what he makes them for. He puts one at a city called Dan. If you go to Israel, some of the tours stop at Dan. You might get to see it if you're on that trip. Who knows? I'm not sure they're going or not this year. The other calf went to Bethel. So one giant golden calf at Dan, one giant golden calf at Bethel. So Bethel has kind of gone from Jacob's ladder to golden calf. What a turnaround. And it's a bad one. Now, later, the good king of Judah, Josiah, ends up destroying Bethel for its idolatry. And you can find that story over in 2 Kings if you want. But here's what's interesting. Bethel is never mentioned in the New Testament at all. Josiah gets rid of it, gone, done, golden calf, no more Bethel. Never mentioned. And it was a pretty significant city at one point. And it started well. It just didn't finish well. 
But enough of that rabbit trail. Back to our text. Verse 9 and 10. What is Abram doing by now? It says in verse 9, he sets out. He continued toward the Negev, which is a desert, by the way. And there was a famine in the land. Well, no wonder, because the Negev is a desert. And then Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. Well, this part is my opinion. Let me clarify this one. My opinion. But I see right here two kind of what I would call big problems. God, remember if you go back a few verses, we just read them, God said, this is the land. This is it. And my Bible anyway, it doesn't say go to the Negev or Egypt, either one. Maybe God told him to. I don't want to say he didn't because I'm kind of, like I said, my opinion. But he's in the desert. Maybe he's in a spiritual desert is my real point. Maybe he's kind of gotten a little dry, a little stale. He's doing his own thing. He thinks it's a good idea. He already was told this is the land. But he's moving on for some reason. I really can't fathom as I study this. And then to make matters worse, he goes to clearly a nation he knows is not good, which is Egypt, a pagan nation. Next thing you want to write down, the third point. If we don't seek God, we try to fix our problems on our own strength, our problems usually increase. You ever had that problem? I have. You forget to ask God or you just don't think about it or maybe you have a plan of your own and you say, God, could you bless my plan? You didn't ask God about the plan. You just said, I got a plan, God. Could you bless it for me? That kind of, to me, looks like what Abram's doing. Maybe I'm overthinking it. You can make your own minds up. But I'll definitely show you his problems increase. That'll be a, a non-issue right here. He's going to have some more big problems. And I think it might be related to him moving ahead of God. That's just me. Let's read some more verses and you decide. Verse 11 and 12 and 13. Here's what they say. As he was about to enter Egypt, he says to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they're going to kill me, but they will let you live. Now think about what God promised. You're going to be a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. Is it possible for him to be killed in Egypt if he remembers that promise? I would say, my mind, no. But we'll give him a little bit of slack. We'll give him some grace. Let's keep reading. So he comes up with a plan. He tells Sarai, say that you're my sister so that I, it's kind of like I, will be treated well for, for your sake and my life will be spared by you. But here's the problem with this. It's not mentioned in Scripture. But historically, Egypt, when they took her in, which they do, they would have probably made her a concubine. He's kind of putting his wife up for grabs in a way to protect his own neck, in my opinion anyway. But either way, he's lying. He's making up stories, and worse than that, he's making his wife lie. It's not just him lying. He's making Sarai do it again. So I think he's kind of fixing his problem in his own power. His problem's going to get even worse. The lying's not the biggest part of the problem. We'll get to that in just a second. Let's keep reading. 14, 15, 16. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful, so he was correct on that one. But I have already said, I don't think he belongs in Egypt. So he could have fixed that problem by not going there. But anyway, let's keep reading. In 15, it says, when Pharaoh's officials saw her, 
they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. In my mind, she wasn't just a visitor. Whether anything happened, we don't know. Hopefully not. But that would probably be the intention of what was going to happen. And Abraham thought the idea up. Then in 16, he does get treated well. It says, Pharaoh, he, he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abraham required sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants. Male and female servants. More about that in just a second. And some camels. Don't forget the camels. I've already made the case, in my opinion, he made a big mistake by first going to the desert. You had the promised land. And if you go back, think about what the promised land was described to when Joshua and Caleb entered. Remember, it was fruit and grapes and giant things, and it was abundant and green and lush. He goes to the Negev Desert. Then he goes further to Egypt. But don't miss what that last verse said. He acquired male and female, don't miss that one, servants. A few weeks from now, we're going to talk about Hagar. Hagar. Where do you think he gets Hagar? Egypt. We don't know what would have happened, but if he never goes to the desert, never goes to Egypt, do we have the whole Hagar story? I don't know. But it just seems to me possibly not. You can make your own mind up. Either way, I think he's kind of out of God's will, moving ahead, and he's doing things maybe he's not supposed to. But God still protects him. We'll get to that in a second, too. Verse, I'm going to read a few more verses, 17 through 20. Because there is a price to pay for this lion, but it's not really on them. It's going to be kind of on Pharaoh, ironically. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. He wasn't supposed to have her. But Pharaoh, it's not his fault, he got lied to. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, and he's going to confront him about it. What have you done to me? He knows who to blame. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why are you such a liar? Is what he's really saying. Why did you say to me she's my sister? So that I would take her to be my wife. That's why I mentioned the concubine. Pharaoh says clearly, why did I take her to be my wife? One of my harem, but hopefully she didn't really have to be his wife. There probably was a long line of older ones or more current ones, I would hope anyway. Now then, here's your wife. Take her back. Take her back and go. Get out of here. It's kind of like a, a pre-plague plague in a way. This Pharaoh, the other Pharaoh, should have taken note and listened and done the same thing. Take your people and go. But he didn't apparently know Egyptian history and do the same thing. The Pharaoh we know about from the Exodus is what I'm getting at. But in verse 20 it says, Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. They sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had, which if you back up to that other verse would be, the sheep, the cattle, the male and female donkeys, and the male and female servants, including likely, in my mind, one named Hagar. But look how good God is, though. He knows Abram's messing up. He protected Abram and Sarai from Pharaoh, even though Abram's lying. And God never changes the promise. He doesn't revoke the promise because Abram, as a liar, made Sarah lie. And here's why. The promise was based on God's character, not Abram's. 
God's character is immaculate. It's perfect. He's God. He made the promise irregardless of Abram's behavior, which is the last thing you want to write down. This should encourage us, too, by the way. This is for us. God's promises don't change when I fail, when you fail, when we fail. But we should change, I think, anyway. Once again, you can decide for yourself. We must change from drivers into passengers. Now, maybe that sounds weird. And here's why. I'm going to kind of talk to the older people in the room. Not that old, but at least my age, we'll say. Remember there was an old bumper sticker that God is my co-pilot? Anybody remember that one? If you think about that, that is about the dumbest thing we could have put on our bumper. God is the co-pilot, really? Who does that mean driving? I'm driving, sit over there, God, I'll take you where I want to go. God is the pilot. I should not be driving, neither should you. We should give up the wheel. You know, there's a, there's a song, let Jesus take the wheel. I love that song. Yeah. That's what really Scripture calls us to do. Give up control of your life, not the car, your life. Let me drive. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Let Jesus drive. And he will take you to the best places. It'll be a perfect trip. It'll, you'll see things you can never imagine. It ends up in heaven. And it's an eternal trip that lasts forever. But I can't get there if I'm driving. So the real question is, tonight, for you watching online, out in the commons, in this room, who's driving? Who's driving your symbolic car? Are you driving or is God? Is Jesus? Who's got the wheel? Maybe tonight is the night you let go. Maybe you'll get a partial blessing if God's your co-pilot, like some of the verses tonight. But you're really missing out by not letting God drive. To get full blessing, like that main point said, we've got to become passengers. And that means have faith. I don't need to know where we're going, Lord. I'm just getting in the back seat. Not even the passenger seat. We shouldn't even be the co-pilot. We should be in the back seat. And don't be a backseat driver either, by the way. Just go along for God's ride. So we're going to pray for that tonight. Maybe that's you. Maybe God convicted you. I'll just encourage you, pray a prayer, and I'll lead us in one. God, take the wheel. I'm ready to let go. Maybe some of you did that over Easter weekend. We had a, quite a big response at the altar call. But maybe you wanted to and you didn't. Maybe tonight's the night to pray that prayer. So let's just bow our heads. Lord, tonight we love you. We know you love us, and we have faith that you're going to bless us, Lord. But tonight, Lord, help us let go of that wheel. Some of us have let go before. Maybe you gripped it back again. Maybe you've been helping God steer. Father, help us all to let go of that wheel and let you drive, and that will be the best ride we've ever been on. So, Lord, we need your help. Holy Spirit, guide us. Help us make that decision. Help us choose to be in the back seat and let you take over our lives, Lord. Not symbolically, but actually, and let you steer and drive us wherever you would take us, because it'll be the best place we could ever imagine. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all said, amen. amen. If you have any questions about that prayer, I'll be down front. I'd love to pray with you again if you're convicted. Otherwise, we'll see you this weekend. Don't miss the Heaven and Hell series.